Palm Sunday is always a, a fun Sunday on a number of levels. Always great to see those kids coming through. It's fun as a preacher trying to decide if you're going to preach specifically for Palm Sunday in this text or if you're going to continue in the series. And I opted for both. It's the same as when my wife asked me, do you want you know, chicken or hamburger? Yes, I want both. So as we continue in our All for One series, we're going to take uh, a few moments this morning to read our text, not from the book of Ephesians, but actually from the book of Mark. So I'd invite you to turn to the book of Mark, chapter 11, as we read about the triumphant entry of our Lord. Now it's kind of a misnomer if you have that as your heading in, in your Bible, as the NIV does and, and several others, because really the triumphal entry will happen when our Lord returns. But as he comes to Jerusalem as king, he's being acknowledged here today. In fact, the newer NIV uh, has that as its heading. I'm actually going to uh, shorten my reading from what I had originally planned, but we'll be reading through verse, uh, through verse 21. Mark writes, As they approached Jerusalem... And came to Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you. And just as you enter it, you'll find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you why are you doing this, say the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back, back here shortly. They went and found a colt outside in the street, tied at a doorway. As they untied it, some people standing there asked, What are you doing untying that colt? They answered as Jesus had told them to, and the people let them go. When they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks over it, he sat on it. Many people spread their cloaks on the road, while others spread branches they had cut in the, in the fields. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. Jesus entered Jerusalem and went into the temple courts. He looked around at everything, but since it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves, and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, it is, not written, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations? But you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Father, as we open your word today, help us to recognize that all we have is Christ. We have no other hope. We live in a fallen, sinful, cursed world. We are unclean in ourselves. And we live among an unclean people. And you are holy. And therefore we have no hope of approaching you on our own. 
Father, help us this morning to see some for the first time, some to see afresh that our hope is entirely in Christ. That you have offered us grace, unmerited favor, forgiveness we could never earn in the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ, who died on the cross in our place. Father, may the the knowledge of that change us. Cause it to sink into our hearts. Father, it can only do that when you change our hearts. We and ourselves are too hard. We're too sinful. We would never turn to you. We would never choose you on our own. Not the true you. We have a tendency to try to create you in our own image, to put you in a box, to make you fit our expectations. And how empty that is. How hollow. How shallow. Father, forgive us for the times that we have have given ourselves to worship, but according to our human religious understanding, not on your terms, not with the fullness of our hearts, not with the surrender of our lives. Lord, help us today. There are so many things that that lay on our hearts and minds that distract us, that keep us thinking about earthly things rather than eternal things. Many of those stresses, Father, even the celebrations, even the good things, are stealing our focus even this morning. And so we ask that you would just clear the deck for us. Help us to set all these temporal things aside. To receive from you what you would reveal to us by your Spirit. Father, we are surrounded in this world by circumstances that the devil uses to discourage us. Protect us from that. And Lord, we've been inundated with teachings inspired by the prince of this world to deceive us. Things that we've taken into our minds and our hearts. and Father, we may not even recognize them as false doctrine because they're often not presented this way but just the the thoughts the beliefs that we pick up in this world around us strip these deceiving thoughts away from us protect us from any voice in this moment that would exalt itself above the knowledge of you we want you lord Lord, I pray also that you would protect us from human opinion, including my own. Remind us that we need your word. So speak beyond your servant's faltering tongue today, Lord. Make me bold, make me clear. Most of all, make me a vessel for your words. We pray this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. On this Palm Sunday, we remember this particular event in the life of our Lord as he uh, enters into Jerusalem. And upon entering, before he gets to Jerusalem, he's, he's coming down the hill and he's approaching Bethany and Bethphage, these towns outside of Jerusalem. And as he's approaching that's when he sends the disciples to get the donkey. They get the donkey, he rides the donkey, comes in, seems strange, maybe innocuous, but this is him announcing himself as a king. Now, the the way the Jewish king would ride into town in peace, he is offering himself as king. It's not the same as what the Roman emperor would do in riding in following a victory with a big parade with steeds and chariots not that Jesus isn't coming as the conquering king but in peace to offer himself 
as the people see him, they're gathered, they're not yet in Jerusalem, and they are, they are taken aback. Perhaps not as much by the sight. I, I take it that they really recognize what he's saying here by riding in on this donkey, and, and they're acknowledging here that he is king. We see that in the way they greet him. They acknowledge him in these specifically Hebraic Jewish uh, praises. And they're quoting Old Testament passages. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. As they are doing this, they are acknowledging Jesus as the Messiah. But why are they doing it? They've heard about his miracles. They've heard his teaching. In fact, we just read from Mark that everyone was amazed at his teaching. He taught, as we read earlier in Mark, as one with authority. Not like the teachers of the law doing a job, but this is the author teaching the book. So when Jesus is teaching, the people are caught up. Not because of his appeal to their flesh, although the dynamism of his speaking unquestionably would have done that. Not because he's some powerful figure. We see that he's not especially attractive in any particular way to earthly eyes. Just a regular Jewish rabbi. But this Jewish rabbi is the king of all kings. They acknowledge him as he comes in, and they're expecting this Messiah to do everything they have been hoping Messiah would do. To overthrow the Romans, to deliver God's final fulfillment of his promises to Israel, that all their enemies would be slain and Israel would be elevated and exalted. And the world would see that they are special before God. But it kind of goes awry for them because he ends up nailed to a cross. It's very confusing for those who are following but right now, on this Sunday, we're not even there yet. They're excited. They're caught up in the emotion of it. And you know how it goes when a party starts, the vibe starts going, and everybody gets caught up in it. You know, you get to a wedding reception, the first couple people on the dance floor, they're kind of by themselves, you know, 15 minutes in, five songs in, everybody's starting to get out there, the floor's crowded, you're doing that cha-cha slide or whatever else. So if you can picture this gathering cha-cha slide of, of the palm branches out here. Mark doesn't refer to them as palm branches, but we see that in the other Gospels. They're waving these palm branches to praise him. They're laying their coats down to honor him. And then he gets into the city. The crowds have died down. He enters Jerusalem. He goes to the temple. He looks around. Now, according to what Mark writes here, he gets there, it's late. Everybody's pretty much gone home. Jesus also goes back to Bethany. He leaves Jerusalem, goes back to Bethany, hangs with the disciples, comes back in the morning. When he gets there in the morning, now the hustle and bustle of the marketplace that the temple has become takes over. The crowds are there, people changing, you know, money changing hands. There is... A marketing, if you will, of God. A marketing of the religious trappings. What started out as a good service to, to uh, folks who arrived in Jerusalem from far away and were not able to, to bring their sacrifices with them, they could purchase them there at the temple courts. But it became something that was more of a profiteering racket. Now, Jesus isn't chill anymore. Now Jesus is fired up. And the king who had just entered his city, the God who is now entering the temple, shows up, overturns the tables, kicks the money changers out, doesn't allow anybody to do any more business because there's real business to do with God. We're told in Mark that as he taught them. 
that strikes me as I read it that maybe we've misunderstood when we see Jesus overturning the tables we think of him losing his temper this is Jesus he's had enough and he's just ticked but it's more than that Jesus is teaching his very presence in the temple is a lesson. His very presence there overturning the tables, kicking the money changers out, is a lesson in itself. But he says to them, this is my father's house. Is it not written that this is going to be a house of prayer? Not only for Israel, but for all nations. God always had planned for the Gentiles to be brought in. Instead, you've made this a house of robbers, a, a den of thieves. He's teaching them. Then we have this issue of the fig tree. As he's going in from Bethany to Jerusalem, Jesus encounters this fig tree. It's green and leafy. It looks good. But it's not the season for figs. Jesus would know this because you know he's Jesus but also because just like you and I know when it's time for the the corn and beans to be combined in the fall because we live in, a, in an agricultural area where we grow that there's a lot of figs here it's not new for Jesus and yet he encounters this tree that that looks good because it's got the leaves but there's no fruit on it and he says this curious thing may no one ever eat from you again and that tree is withered when they come back. These three connected stories tell us something. The Lord is painting a picture for us here of true worship. Worship in spirit and in truth. Worship from the inside out. What we have here is three scenarios, three pictures of something that looks good on the outside but is dead on the inside. The people praising outwardly, they're caught up in the emotion, they're, they're caught up in the celebration, they're caught up in what they expect Jesus to be, but that's not who he is. Their worship is shallow and on the inside they're still essentially worshiping self. What are you going to do for me? He gets to the temple, and the temple still looks like it always has looked. It looks like the place that God manifests himself, where the people come to worship him. But on the inside, God has left the building. On the inside, instead of a house of prayer for all nations, you have a den of robbers. You have people gathered for their own purposes, taking advantage of others, turning worship into business. Look good on the outside, dead on the inside. Jesus sees the fig tree that looks good with the leaves, and we can recognize this as a symbolic moment. It's a, a physical parable, if you will. Jesus isn't mad at the fig tree for being the fig tree. This is a picture of Israel, and specifically of the priesthood and the leadership. They were meant to bear fruit. They were meant for the nations to come to God. They were meant to be the light to the Gentiles. And for the people of God, through the, through the temple, to experience the worship of God where the law would be read and taught, and people would worship in spirit and in truth. But instead, Jesus is letting us know, he's recognizing and calling out here, that what God has done in Israel, that season is over. It's a new season. No one gets to God through the Levitical law anymore this is a picture of the fulfillment that will come what God is saying about his own people so they look good on the outside the dead on the inside 
that same thing did not need to be said of the Gentiles. That was already assumed. The Gentiles were already outside. They were outside of the kingdom. They weren't welcome in the temple. They could come into the courts, but they couldn't come in. Now, this is a whole different picture for us. As Jesus entered the city, the crowds hailed him as king. And just a week later, the crowds would shout, crucify him. If you're anything like me, you've got to be asking yourself, how is that even possible? And maybe, not maybe, definitely, more importantly, how can I not be that? How can that not happen in my life? Because I'm here on Sunday morning and I'm shouting, Hosanna! And I'm saying, all I have is Christ. How can I keep myself from turning away even by the end of the week? Well, Paul gives us the key in Ephesians. You can turn there if you will. We're going to take a, a, a brief tour through uh, chapters 4 through 6. Not going to read it all, so don't have a heart attack. That was the original plan. <laughs> the key that Paul gives us in Ephesians is pretty simple. It's that we're looking at the reality of life in Christ, that we have been made alive in Christ, saved by grace, chosen, adopted, predestined, captured in Him. Our identity has been changed if we have received Him by faith. So the, the picture that we have here in the first three chapters of Ephesians is that God has taken those that he has set apart for himself and he has made them his children. Dead in sins, every single one of us. There's no difference between Jew and Gentile. There's no difference between the person that grows up in the church learning all the Sunday school songs and memorizing verses and the person who grows up in the, in the back room of the bar. It doesn't matter. We're all dead in our sin, period. There's no difference except for when God reaches into the fire and snatches us out and says, this one's mine. I'm giving this one a new heart. I'm giving this one a new spirit so that they can see and know and desire me so they can be saved. At the end of Ephesians chapter 3, where we ended up last week was our, our memory verse Paul, having, having his mind blown, even as he is doing the teaching, as he's doing the writing here, every time Paul thinks about the grace of God, he is overwhelmed. And so he, he finishes up with this idea, starting in verse 14, for, for the, this reason, the reason of God's grace, the reason that God is, is building you together into a temple, not the temple that we knew before, but the church now is the temple of God where he manifests himself. For that reason, I kneel before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ and to know this love that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Paul's just bursting with this information. It's changed him and he wants to see it change us. And he continues as he shifts gears now. He goes from our position in Christ to our practice. If I'm in Christ, what does that look like? What does the reality of being in Christ look like in the reality of my everyday experiences? And he starts out verse 1 of chapter 4 saying, 
as a prisoner for the Lord then? Remember, he is in chains. I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. That's a tough one. I think a lot of us have been conditioned out of understanding it. We've been conditioned to believe that there is nothing about us that could ever be worthy. And in ourselves, that's 100% right. My best efforts are filthy rags before the Holy God. But in Christ, I'm not in myself anymore. I'm in Him. In Christ, I have been changed. Now, I still carry this body around, and I still have all the programming I've had throughout my life. God doesn't just hit the delete button. I have to learn how to live a holy life. Paul refers to that a few different times in his letters. But now that I have been called, now that I have become his, I should look like it. It may interest you to notice that, that in the Old Testament, the laws of God that are given are given to Israel. He doesn't reveal himself to the nations, and he doesn't give his, his uh, ceremonial and, and civil law, his moral law, to the nations, but to his own people. That which is universal law, don't kill, the Ten Commandments kind of thing, all of that still applies, but the law has not been given to those outside. Nobody else is expected to live kosher. Nobody else has been given instructions about how to take care of the poor. They should already be set apart for God, but they're not, because back in Genesis we sinned. And God snatches out of the fire Israel. Abram didn't do anything to be chosen. God chose him, pulled him out, said, you're mine. I'm going to make a nation out of you. In fact, I'm going to make many nations out of you. In fact, I'm going to bless all nations through you. And then he gives them the law. For us now in Christ, because we are in Christ, we don't earn our position with him by doing right. Israel didn't earn their position, their covenant with God, by doing right, but because God made a covenant with them, because they were his people, they were to live right. My children don't become my children by obeying me, but because they are my children... Obedience is expected, it is commanded, and it should flow out of their love and respect for their parents. The same is true for us. So Paul says, if this is who you are in Christ, now, because that's who you are, live a life worthy of the calling you received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. One of the things you're going to notice in Ephesians is this oneness idea. That all things are united, reconciled to God in Christ, and placed under His feet, Christ is king over all, including all of us. There's a wholeness picture that we want to see. Our core reality for today, as we look at Ephesians 4, 5, 6, just kind of as, as a broad picture, we'll settle in and look at these individually over the coming weeks, is that those who know Jesus as Lord live like Jesus is Lord. Those who know Jesus as Lord live like Jesus is Lord. So he goes through chapters 4, 5, and 6 saying, okay, if you are a child of God, if I can borrow from that great 20th century philosopher Stephen Tyler, walk this way. <clears throat> Seven of you got that. Anyway, in chapter 4, he kind of walks us through what that looks like. He gives us a picture of unity, and he, and he begins in the first half of chapter 4 saying, look, if, if we're going to be one in Christ, if we're going to have our lives be, be a unified whole of living for Christ, then we've got to grow up. We have to mature. And God places teachers and pastors and evangelists in the church for the purpose of bringing about maturity to help us grow together. 
And next week, we'll take a look at the picture of, of, of our unity through the lens of the closer we get to Christ, the closer we get to one another. But then he goes on to, to talk about how that should look. What should we not do? What should we do? Chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. And he goes on to say, Among you, there must not be even a hint of sexual immorality or of any kind of impurity or of greed, because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, but you're out of place. But rather, thanksgiving, for of this you can be sure, no immoral, impure, or greedy person, such a person is an idolater, has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of such things God's wrath comes on those who are disobedient. Therefore do not be partners with them. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light. I can't wait to get into that chapter and develop that a little bit more. He gives instruction then for how we should live. If, if we're going to live for Christ, uh, chapter 5 verse 21 says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. It should be the dominant mentality of Christ followers that we have a deference to one another. We have an attitude of submission. Yes, there are still roles of authority and submission, whether in the church or in, in our communities or in our families. But our basic attitude should not be, I'm the boss and you're not. Or, you're the boss and I'm just a doormat. Our attitude should be one of love and submission toward one another. And then he lays out what that looks like in various relationships, in the household, in the workplace, and so on. Finally, he gets to the end of chapter 6, and he points out to us that we're in a battle. Chapter 6, starting with verse 10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. Can't wait to get to talk about that. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world. This is not speaking of politics. This is spiritual authorities, spiritual powers. The forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Therefore, put on the full armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground, and after you've done everything, to stand. And he gives some specific instructions of what that armor looks like. And he comes to the end of that section and says in verse 19, Pray also for me, that whenever I speak, words may be given me so that I will fearlessly make known the, the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains. Pray that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. This, this prayer that Paul is requesting here is an indicator of what he says in Philippians, what he says in Romans 7. Man, I don't have this all down. I haven't perfected this. This is true. Reality is real. I can't get away from the truth, but if you think I'm without sin, you haven't met me. As your pastor, I say the same thing. If you somehow think that I've got some, <laughs> some easy VIP ticket to God, that holiness just comes naturally to me, then you obviously have not met me. My family can attest to that. We all struggle in many ways. We all stumble. We're not perfect. But if we are His, our identity has changed. We are on a new path with a new heart, a new mind, a new purpose. And our entire approach to life changes. Sin no longer defines us. It doesn't fit us. Having seen what Paul is saying to the Ephesian church, 
the key for us to not be among those who are the shallow worshipers, shouting Hosanna and then shouting crucify him. The key is the reality of life in Christ. Not lip service, but real service. Not acts of, of righteousness to try to earn points with God, but the righteousness of God that we have by faith in Christ overflowing from within us. Not me living the Christian life, I would fail miserably. But Christ in me, Christ living the Christian life, He lives through me. I can't do it. I can't be right but God has made me right. Therefore, it only makes sense that I would live a life worthy of that calling. Some principles that we want to look at here. As we, as we work through this, this, there are really two steps. Be in Christ. Live in Christ. I am in Christ when God opens my eyes, softens my heart, allows me to be able to, to see who he truly is, renews me by his spirit, regenerating me within. So now, for the first time, I'm able to submit to him. And I want Jesus in my life. I, not, I want Jesus to fix my life. That's a different thing. Because most of us would like to have somebody fix our life. And if you hear that Jesus is the one that can do it, then great, I'll take Jesus. Jesus doesn't work? Okay, I'll take Buddha. Uh, that doesn't work? Okay, let me, let me, I'll come up with something else. Let me go follow Muhammad's teaching, because that seems to be working for somebody, and, and what I'm doing now isn't working. No, that's not how this goes. That's what the, the folks waving the palm branches wanted. Jesus, come fix our life. Get rid of the Romans. Cause us to be blessed. Fulfill God's promises to us. Lift us up. But Jesus didn't come to give them what they wanted. He came to be the very thing that they needed. And he does that now. If you and I are coming to God expecting Jesus to fix our lives, rather than asking Jesus to be our lives, then we haven't gotten it yet. But if we are in him, the next step is, pretty straightforward. Live like it. If I am in Christ, I should live for Christ. He died for me, therefore it only makes sense that I would live for him. There are five principles that we want to draw from what we saw today in, in, in looking at these folks uh, at the entrance to Jerusalem and seeing the big picture of what Paul is telling us here in Ephesians. Five things we want to look at. First, true worship is more than emotion. True worship is more than emotion. Just like the crowds outside Jerusalem, we often have this tendency to get caught up in the experience of worship. The songs, the way the words of Scripture make us feel, whether that's inspired or comforted or convicted. Very often these feelings appeal to our flesh. And even unregenerate souls who have no part of Christ at all can still feel emo emotionally stirred by a religious experience. This is why seeker-sensitive or seeker-driven, more specifically, I have some issues with the terms, seeker-driven church services are so popular. Because if you've got a rockin' band, and you've got a, you know, a nice concert-level light show, and your chairs are comfortable, and you've got an air-conditioned building, you can appeal to the flesh. And even somebody who doesn't know Christ at all and has no desire to can still have fun. I watched, no joke, watched a sermon from a prominent popular pastor where he's preaching and squirting the crowd with a super soaker in the middle of the sermon to make his illustration. And I thought, man, that was great at youth camp when I was 14. But we need something better we need something truer, something more real than just an appeal to the emotions and the fun of a religious experience. Now maybe it's not a seeker-driven service that we are after. Maybe it's something more liturgical. 
where we go and we get the sights and the smells and, and we burn the incense and we have all these different things and we're very much in the same spot as the Jews in the temple. You've got all the trappings, you've got all the religious feeling things, so it seems like worship, but it's appealing to my flesh, not engaging my heart with God's. True worship is more than emotion. God desires worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth from the inside out. Actions that match the reality of our connection with Him. When Israel continued to worship God according to the ceremonial law, but failed to live for Him, the Lord said in Isaiah 29, 13, These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In Matthew 15, Jesus quoted that very same thing of the religious leaders who seemed pious on the outside, but their worship was driven by their own human desires and feelings, not the reality of surrender to the Lord. I'm going to have you turn to the book of Amos. About half of you are saying, I didn't even know there was a book of Amos. Amos is a minor prophet, not because his words are less important, but because the books are skinny in that section. So they're called minor. If you're not sure where that is, if you go to Psalms and start turning to the right, you go past uh, Isaiah, Jeremiah, you get through Ezekiel and Daniel, then you're getting close, right? Once you get past Daniel, Amos is coming right on its heels. Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Find Amos chapter 5. Not Mambo number 5. Amos chapter 5. Don't be confused. Amos 5, uh, the prophet is, is calling out Israel. There is a, there's a, a, a tragic state in which he finds his people in that they have been separated from their God. And Amos grieves over this. He laments over this. Notice, <laughs> man, I want to read more of it, but I want to just focus in on 21 to 24. Amos is speaking God's words as he says, I hate, I despise your religious festivals. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. Though you bring choice fellowship offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps but let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. This is how God feels about a a worship that is caught up in the flesh parts. If you're getting fired up about a sermon because the preacher stands up here and beats his chest and pounds the pulpit, or has some clever turn of phrase... Those things are tools that can help. But they only help as far as they connect us with God. If you love the music that you hear on a Sunday morning because it's the style of music that you expect, and it's well performed, and the singers have good voices, then we're missing the point. We're not here for a concert and a lecture. We're the body of Christ joined together to connect our hearts and minds in worship of God. So whether you're doing a song that was written specifically for the service or a song that was written 500 years ago, the point is, are we rejoicing in Christ? Are we seeing God's Word? Is it taking hold not only of our emotions, but of our very lives so that it calls us and moves us to repentance and surrender. So that when we leave the service and the pep talk is over, if you will, and we get on the field of play and we go out into this world that is opposed to Christ and we're swimming in the filthy soup 
of sinfulness, then what? God is not looking for lip service, but worshipers who worship in spirit and in truth. True worship is more than emotion. Uh, taking more time on that point uh, than I will on the rest because I want to establish a foundation here. Once we get these first two points, the rest kind of follow after. The first point, true worship is more than emotion, as we see from what God says through Amos. The second is this, the king comes on his terms, not ours. The king comes on his terms, not ours. Jesus, as we see this account in Luke, weeps over Jerusalem. If you want to check that out, you can find that in, in Luke chapter 19. Jesus wept over Jerusalem because they failed to recognize the salvation that God had sent. The crowds may have hailed him as king upon his entrance, but they did so based on their own expectations, excited about his miracles, wanting to get more of their own desires, not giving themselves over to whatever God desired. It was right for them to praise him. In fact, Jesus himself said that if they hadn't, even the very rocks and stones would cry out. They would do the praising because this was the time for him to be acknowledged as king to receive this praise. But the people who did it, their praise was shallow. They didn't get it any more than the rocks and stones and probably less. It was shallow because it was based on their own expectation of what he could do for them as the Messiah. God does not accept worship on our terms. He is not in need of our praise. Let me say that again. God is not in need of our praise. Jesus did not come here because he didn't want heaven without us. That is garbage heresy. Put it out of your heart and mind. The reality is God does not need you or me. He loves us because he chooses to love us by his grace, according to his character. He is who he is. The name he reveals himself to Moses by, I am that I am. He is the creator and ruler of the universe. He stands apart. It is only his grace that turns our hearts, allows us to receive Christ by faith, makes us his own set apart for him and holy and allows us to approach him with confidence as his children. The king comes on his own terms, not ours. Now, with the foundation of understanding true worship is more than emotion and understanding that we don't get to decide, we don't get to come to God on our terms. He doesn't come to make us happy and, and meet our expectations, but to be who he is. And we need to align ourselves with that reality. Brings us to our third point. The Lord gives His chosen ones new hearts and minds. The Lord gives His chosen ones new hearts and minds. He says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. I'll take the, the heart of stone out of you and I'll put a heart of flesh into you. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. The principle applies to us as well. We see it fulfilled in the New Testament in Christ. It's exactly what Paul said in Ephesians 1 and 2. You were dead. He made you alive. You were off on your own, not even interested in Him. And He chose you. And He adopted you. And He made you His own. So when you receive Him by faith, that faith isn't because you're so great that you have more holiness to see these things than other people do. You have some magic ability to trust God. No, it's because God opened your eyes. And He gave you a new heart and a new mind. God moves in those He has chosen, making our stone-hard hearts flesh soft by His Spirit. He gives us a new heart with new affections so that we want to know Him. He doesn't bring us kicking and screaming into the kingdom of heaven, he changes our desires with a new heart, new affections. He gives us a new mind so that we can see reality as it is, 
through the lens of His Word. By His grace, we now have faith to see Him, to grasp His ungraspable love, to, to know His unknowable grace. This is powerful. He makes us able to trust Jesus for our salvation and to trust Him with our daily living. The spiritual things that we could not understand before. We could not understand those spiritual things apart from God. They seemed like foolishness to us. Now in Christ they make sense. The ways of this world that used to be so very normal for us when we followed that pattern, we now recognize them as foolish, illogical, out of step with who we are in Christ. Which brings us to our next point. Be who you are, not who you were. Be who you are, not who you were. It is foolish, by the way, for Christians to expect unbelievers to act like believers. If you're not a child of God by faith, if you're in the world, then you can't live for God. You don't have it in you. You don't have the tools. So stop expecting those who don't know Christ to live up to your standards in Christ. God will deal with them. He is their judge, not you or me. But as believers, those who are children of the same father, that makes us family. Believe me, when I see my family get sideways, I'm going to tell them. Ask my children. Ask my brother and sister. When we see each other not taking the right path, we are going to talk about it. Not because we want to beat each other down, that's not love, but because we want to see the best in one another's lives. Those of us who are in Christ are family. And it's appropriate for us to then say, hey, listen, you live like that? That doesn't fit who you are. If you're in Christ, live for Christ. Ephesians is about reconciliation, oneness, wholeness, in choosing us, adopting us, uniting us with Christ. God has brought us from death to life. He has changed our identity from sinner to saint. A holy child of God set apart for his purposes. We are now in Christ, children of the King, citizens of heaven, not primarily citizens of any part of this world. I'm not primarily an American citizen. I am primarily a citizen of heaven. We don't belong to this world. To live like who we used to be before we were saved is incongruous with who we are. It's like those old clothes from when you're in high school that don't fit you. It doesn't apply to you, Maisie. You're still in high school. But if I try to put on the clothes I wore in high school, come on, man. That ain't going to happen. And you wouldn't want to see it if it could, right? They don't fit. They're out of style. It doesn't make sense that I would try to. The reality is that's us in Christ. Who we used to be doesn't fit anymore. The oneness, the wholeness we have in Christ means living a life that fits. A whole life of authenticity and integrity. A life that looks like daddy. A life of gratitude for God's mind-blowing grace to us. A life worthy of the calling we've received. Our last point. If we're going to live a life worthy of the calling we have received. Understand this. Those who belong to Christ, live for Christ. Those who belong to Christ, live for Christ. Changing the way we live and following a set of rules for Christian living cannot make us right with God. I'm going to say that again because I don't want anybody be, to be confused. Don't come to church to try to clean up your act so that you can get right. And if you come to church and you do the church things and, and, and you wear the right clothes and you, you, you put your check in the, in the offering box, that this is going to make everything right in your life. 
No. I'll tell you, doing the right things is going to give you better benefits, for sure. I'm pretty sure working hard is better than being lazy. I'm pretty sure that being honest and having a, lot, a good reputation is going to take you farther in this world than being dishonest and people seeing you as shady. That's just basic principles. But what it won't do is it won't make you right with God. It can't undo the sin that is in you. Changing the way I live, following a set of rules for Christian living cannot make us right with God. For it is by grace that we're saved. Grace alone. And we take hold of that salvation by faith. Faith that God gives us. Even that's not of ourselves. So there's no role for our effort, no place for our boasting. Rather, we live for Christ because we belong to Christ. Let me reemphasize that. We live for Christ because we belong to Christ. Living a godly life isn't the means, but the sign of having a relationship with God. It doesn't get you there. It demonstrates that you are there. We become His by receiving Jesus on His terms according to the faith that God has given us. Because we are His, the faith that we have leads us to obedience. Our memory verse for today is from 2 Corinthians 5.15. One of my favorite chapters of the Bible, by the way. I just... You, probably know that if you've been here because I keep going back to it over and over. Paul writes this to the Corinthian church. And he, Christ, died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who dies for them, who died for them and was raised again. Let me read that again since I stumbled. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. Paul also says in, in Romans 12.1, in light of everything that he had previously said, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy, pleasing to God. This is your spiritual, reasonable act of worship. Those who know Jesus as Lord live like Jesus is Lord. This is how we avoid the shallow worship that ends in turning. When I have expectations of God that He's going to fix my circumstances and He doesn't, and I bail. How many times have we heard people say, you know, I tried Christianity, it didn't work for me. I tried religion. It didn't work for me. I prayed and God didn't answer. I prayed and my loved ones still died. I still lost my job. I still struggled with that sin. The cancer, the COVID, whatever. It all still happened. I can't believe because God didn't do what I expected. That is palm branch worship. What God wants from us is a tree that bears fruit. Not something that looks good on the outside and is dead on the inside. But worship in spirit and in truth. A changed heart that makes a changed life. Let's pray. Father, as we round out this service today, help us. Help us to grasp the truth of your word. Lord, I know that nobody's going to be able to grasp and understand this because I said it, even if I said it well. They're only going to be able to grasp it when your spirit reveals it to them. So, Father, open our eyes. May the things that have been said and read as your word was proclaimed today linger in our hearts that they would settle into us so that throughout the rest of this day and throughout our week we would be filled with thoughts of you that the reality 
of being in Christ would result in lives dominated by his presence dwelling in us. Help us, Father, to build our lives upon your love, upon your word, upon your Son. Help us as those who know him as Lord to live as if he truly is the Lord of our lives. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Let's stand for our closing song. Amen.